This is Salvatore Totino, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Episode 47 of the Cinematography Podcast begins now. Right now. Right now. Ilya, how you doing? Wow. Are you going to ask me what I had for breakfast, too? Ilya, what'd you have for breakfast? Oh, no, we promised we would never do that. And uh, I got to say that uh, I'm not going to answer. Good. Good for you. It was a test and you've passed. <laughs> hey, on the show today is Sal Totino, a fantastic cinematographer. Well, you know what? Um, can I, can I, can I uh, yeah. do a mea culpa about yeah. the Sal Totino Go for it. episode? Yeah. I neglected to ask him about one of the things that I love that he shot which was the Jake Scott music video for Radiohead's fake plastic trees. And it was even kind of on my, I don't really come in with like a list list, but it was on like my preparation, my, my, you know, thinking through it. And, and Sal is such an interesting and cool guy with so much, uh, you had so much to talk about. You had tons of stuff to talk about. I got, I got lost and I, uh, I forgot to talk about fake plastic trees. So if we ever bring him back, Fake plastic trees is on the agenda. I'm starting with fake plastic trees. All right. You're not going to forget it. Hey, well, Ben, I'm going to interrupt you here because we actually got a piece of fan mail about this new thing that we started. You know, this little bit of um, sort of timely topical discussion relating to uh, all things in the world of cinematography. Don't let me forget because George Foyt actually uh, suggested some names for this segment. Oh, okay. So you you want to, do you want to, yeah, hold on. I'll I'll have to bring them up on my phone. Why don't you go ahead and say the thing you were going to say? What I was going to say is we got a nice email here from Todd McMullen, his cinematographer, and he writes, Hey guys, relevant discussions about the art and craft of cinematography. I caught a bit of your above the line, below the line conversation and have always thought that cinematographers would be more than qualified to request residuals, especially in this day and age of less seasoned directors and even producers who need a little help in navigating the dynamics of episodic and even features. I can fix that. They could just hire me to direct. Go oh, oh, okay. I'm super seasoned. <laughs> uh, I have brought up the idea with my agents in the past, and while I have seen it done, I think the one thing that wasn't brought up in your discussion was the result of the DP rate with the residuals. I believe the discussion with studios would be if you are interested in residuals, then we have to bring your rate down. Then you would have to... Screw that. No way. No way. (laughs) DPs get to keep the same rate and get residuals. I'm sorry. I I think that would only be fair. Uh, um, But then you it's these thinny finishes. uh, Then you would have to weigh the cost of upfront wages as opposed to deferred payments. It may be a wash, but something to consider. I also want to mention that I believe a great topic would be the politics of a cinematographer on a production and how to deal with all the quirks and requests of producers and crew. Keep on keeping on. I mean, that is all fair, and I super appreciate that. But here's what I would say. when, uh, As a director, when I get a residual, that doesn't mean that they deferred my pay. That means that they are hiring me to make the thing, and then they are licensing that thing that I made and giving me an additional fee, which is what's happening with actors, and it's what's happening with writers. It's what's happening with everyone who's in a guild who's not in a union. So uh, You my, know who it's not happening with anymore? Who? Commercial actors. Commercial actors are getting their buyouts up front, and they're actually getting a little bit of extra money, and their residuals for a lot of commercial actors have disappeared. Well, that sucks. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I know an actor really well, who who you know too, 
who uh, was like working at Starbucks and then one day got a role on a Coors Light ad and they shot like six different endings. So in a single day, they shot the whole ad and then six different endings. And the agency loved it so much, or the client or whoever, they brought him back and they had him do like another five endings. So he went from working at Starbucks to being in 11 or 12, <laughs> however many they all commercials, yeah. national spots. And he was able to quit his job and uh, and buy a house. Now, a lot of people would be and like, what that, year was this? Uh, that would have been like uh, 2002, 2003. I think things have changed slightly since then. Of course. Of yeah. course they have. But, you know, the thing that people forget, because people are like, oh, well, you know, he only worked for a couple of days and he made all that money. But I include in the amount of time that it took him to do that, not just the amount of time that it took to audition and go through the motions of getting that job, but how many years of eating shit did that guy have to go through to get that opportunity to suddenly be able to to cash it all in on one thing. And that is what we have to remember with people who are freelancers and people who are freelancers in a creative profession is it takes a long time to get to the point where anyone's going to pay you the real money. So yeah, your paydays are going to be bigger when they happen. It might take you 15 years to get to them. As far as cinematographers go, um, I, again, I wouldn't be doing, I'm not a cinematographer. I wouldn't be doing this show if I didn't think that their contribution was like one of the most significant things in the process. And, and I think, and it's not just cinematographers. I also think editors. I also think composers. I also like a production lot, designers, yeah. production designers, um, certain makeup designers, wardrobe, the special effects coordinators, you know, people who, who really make the shows what they are and whose work is shining through uh, in a lot of ways every much as uh, as any director's work could be shining through obviously the cinematographer to me is the most conspicuous of those and so i i don't know <laughs> if it would affect their day rate slightly to to get more of a residual but you know think of a movie that gets a lot of play like the empire strikes back sure okay so the empire strikes back if i'm not mistaken was shot by peter shushitsky so he, I, I, I'm a fan of his work because he shot like the bulk of David Cronenberg's filmography as well. So as many, any time that The Empire Strikes Back has ever been on commercial television or HBO or whatever, it had to be licensed. Every single actor in The Empire Strikes Back got some kind of a residual. Irvin Kirshner, who directed it, got some kind of a residual. Peter Shushitsky got no residuals. And to me, that is a crime. Yeah, it's too bad. He, of course, also did such, uh, you know, yeah, you're right, Cronenberg, but uh, Eastern Promises. Which so, is, yeah. with, that's yeah, Cronenberg. I think what I'm saying, but yeah, yeah he, recently. So he shot my all-time favorite uh, Cronenberg film, which was uh, Dead Ringers. Nice. And, you know, uh, still doing a bunch of work today, too. It looks like his most recent thing in here, 2015, 2017. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, that's just a for instance, and you think, like, watch that movie and think about the contribution of the cinematographer. It is outrageously significant. And, uh, you know, and again, editor, visual effects supervisor, all those people, they're, they're all humongous parts of, of making that movie good. Uh, great. But think of any movie. So to me, I, I again, like, I can't unmake the world and remake it the way that I wish it were, but I feel like this is something that would be very important uh, for cinematographers to get to get the respect. get their due, yeah, 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 and uh, you know, it, this is why we started this. This is yeah. why we started talking about this, and 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 really why, you know, I, I think I said it before, but the cinematography exists in part so that 
cinematographers can be considered above the line and could potentially get residuals. And I think that we just need a, the buy-in, I think, of a, a few more people who really want to make this a thing. And perhaps we can start our own little movement right here from the podcast. Yeah, of, I think it's going to take more than that. But yeah, I think it's going to take two people. So, <laughs> wow, it's just you and me right now. But oh. no, uh, but, you know, we put we put some effort into it. We get a few more people listening Two, two yeah. people. One of them has to have the ring of absolute power. You're right. One so. of them has to you know, have the precious. Yeah. But, uh, so uh, real quick, uh, George Foyt. Uh, oh, no, we're going back to George Foyt. Okay. Uh, he recommended. Okay. He 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 was just texting me and uh, brainstorming ideas for what we could call this this part that we're doing this yes this 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 pre rant. Uh, I hope he didn't say short ends. He did not. No, because he he listens to the podcast. Oh, good. Okay. He's listening to this right now. He probably is. I promise you, he's listening to this. Uh, Unlike Kay's Alatrachi, George (laughs) listens to the podcast. Fucking Kay's. Anyway, so his suggestions were close focus. Ooh, close focus. I, I don't mind. Actually, George, I, I take back everything I was just saying. That's fantastic. That's really good. You know good. what? I think I'm going to leave it at close focus because I don't think the we, other ones are. The other ones are even that good. Close focus. Yeah. No, no. That's definitely the best one. All right. Then done. I don't even need to hear the other ones. Nomination, uh, seconded, accepted, carried. Our, our new segment right now on the show, close focus. I think we should talk about the politics of being a cinematographer. I think we should take Todd McMullen's suggestion right now and just roll right into it. All right. Okay. So there's a lot of politics when when you are working on anything as the head of the camera lighting and grip department, which the DP typically is. So you have to satisfy the producers who are typically, and maybe that maybe it's, it's worse on uh, productions with lower budgets than higher budgets, but you have to uh, walk the tightrope of having all the tools and things that you need. And then also keeping the production producers happy by not spending, by not spending for all of those things. And, having to make sure that your crew is uh, supported appropriately, that they have the people, the manpower, uh, so to speak, that they need to actually get the job done. Uh, All of this stuff is huge, is potentially huge dollars and potentially huge waste if you over bloat. But at the same time, you need them to work fast, too. You need them to to get to make your day. you're, You're constantly having to fight the battle of what do you cut? What do you keep? How do you make it happen? Unless you're working on the the, the highest end. And then I almost feel like uh, that's that's a human management issue. Maybe not the money, but then you have to manage all of that stuff. Yeah, that comes I remember it. reading an interview with Bill Pope. I want to say it was around Spider-Man 3, where I remember him talking about having to oversee at least three units that were shooting that movie simultaneously and that he wasn't really getting to be on set as much camera in hand or, you know, sitting in video village because he was in management now. Yeah. This may have been me extrapolating it. If we're ever lucky enough to get Bill Pope in here, I will ask him this question. It's something that I sort of dig for a little bit when we're interviewing any cinematographer who who's worked on one of these giant superhero movies. And at this point, we've had several because it seems like it might bleed the joy out of it. But as I recall, like Rachel Morrison seemed to really enjoy her experience on Black Panther. Like all of them seemed to really enjoy it. And I think that it was tied directly to the director who was making the film with them. Hmm. I think I think you're you're probably spot on, but the the politics of being a cinematographer don't just end with the physical uh, characteristics and equipment and manpower for production. One of the other big things too for uh, for DPs is training and mentoring uh, people who come up who might eventually be your replacements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've heard actually 
quite quite a bit lately from people who are maybe uh, established and have been around for a while and then having someone who came in and worked as a gaffer for them and then turns out the next time they were up for a job uh, that gaffer was trying to sneak in and take the DP position that they were also up for so someone who they'd worked very closely with in, in lighting and spent some time together, they they really wished they were doing something else. And it turns out they wished that they were lighting the same show that they were. So, well, of course, when it came time next time to try to get that person, you know, try to get your crew together on a job, you're maybe less inclined to try to get the people who have a lot of ambition and are trying to move up and trying to take the same work that maybe that, that you're going for. You ever, uh, you know, run into some situation like this, Ben? You ever hear of this sort of politics coming into, into play? Honestly, before I moved to L.A. when I lived in Florida, I feel like everyone who had any kind of stranglehold on a department that they were working in, and I, I, trust me, wasn't close to directing when I lived in Florida, but I feel like a lot of those people would, uh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't mentor. They would hide trade secrets Mm, because they they were afraid of that happening. And I personally feel when I moved to L.A. and being in the business, it's like, you know, like the story, not to bring her up again, but Rachel Morrison talked about being a camera PA for Maddie Lee Boutique, who was one of her uh, heroes. Sure. And how she wanted to impress him. And then she accidentally uh, like exposed a mag, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's like it all worked out. Uh, I don't think Rachel Morrison is taking jobs that Maddie would have gotten otherwise. But I think instead, you know, like the two of them know each other and they're friendly or they're friends. And I, I think I think mentorship is is a good thing and i think it's better to mentor someone who might be trying to steal your job later you know like if the, if you if, think it's different in cleveland where like the person where maybe it's not the same industry town or maybe it's in, i think in it, san francisco or i think maybe in a smaller town you're gonna have a lot more backstabbiness i think that you know if you're if you're somebody who's established enough to be shooting a project of any size you have an your, agent yeah. w- whatever it is it's not like someone else is going to be able to just all about Eve their way into your job that easily. That's, that's my, my personal opinion. Uh, one of the things that I think about uh, when I think about the, the politics of being a cinematographer is our late friend, Neil Fredericks. Oh, sure. And Neil did something that I thought was kind of impressive, which is that he sort of saw himself as the advocate for the crew. And when when producers would try and take unfair advantage of the crew, i.e. working them too long of an hour of hours without a break or whatever, Neil would just stop like And I have worked on one other project um, with a DP who I'm hoping we get in here one day. He said he'd do it. Jacques Heitken, who uh, the, the project I worked on Bloodsport 2, I would say the producers were not wonderful to the crew. And Jacques did a similar thing back then. And it's like when you're on the crew and you're being treated like ass all the time and you're accepting it, especially if you're, you know, like in, in my situation at that point, I was 24 years old working on blood sport too, excited to be working on a movie, not realizing that 17 hour days are a little out of the norm. It takes the grown up, and the ultimate grown up on the set is the DP, you know, I mean, not necessarily every DP I'm sure, but definitely but, not. But if the DP says, I'm not shooting, guess what you're not doing? You're not shooting. I, I worked with the opposite of Neil. I worked with the opposite of Jacques. I, I worked with a guy who I won't I won't name or throw under the bus here, but it was a terrible movie. I'll, I'll say that, and I'll probably use it as a, as a war story right. in the future. But uh, yeah, when uh, someone was out of line, when someone was completely in the wrong, he didn't stand up for the crew. He just said, I know, go back to work. We're, we're shooting. And it's like... 
Yeah, you, you really need to have someone who's got your back in, in an authority position. And the DP should be that person, but I don't think they always are. They so. don't. I mean, I feel like uh, if you're in that position, you know, you're always talking about the, the dichotomy of plumber artist, you know. And I think if you're the artist and you're brought on there to do the art, it's not really your job to be that person. It, it shouldn't be your job. But I can also say as a director... Uh, I will use a specific example. Uh, the feature I directed, Alien Raiders, the unfortunately mistitled Alien Raiders, our DP on that was an amazing guy who we've been trying to get in here forever, Walt Lloyd. And I f- always felt that the when the producers, I was, it was my first feature, it was my first union project period, I'd had to join the Directors Guild to do the film. And when the producers would ask for stuff that wasn't okay to ask for, Walt would call them out every time. Now, I think it definitely hurt his reputation with them. Sure. They were less likely to want to work with him again from being called on those things. But the film was better, and I would work with Walt again in two seconds, and I would advocate uh, for him to the ends of the earth, not just because he's an amazing DP and a wonderful person, but because he had my back in ways that I didn't even know that I needed someone to cover my back Mm. as a director. Sure. Well, you, you learn a lot your first time in the big leagues. Yes. So I wouldn't even call that the big leagues, but yeah. In the farm leagues. Yes. <laughs> I just left the little leagues. I hadn't left the little leagues. I'm still in the little leagues. Anyway. Uh, okay. So we talked about the politics maybe surrounding mentorship, the politics surrounding having the grown up on set. Uh, what's another area that uh, politics really comes into play? I mean, uh, one of the ways that it comes into play that I don't know and you don't know, but countless people on this podcast have already talked about is how you get the job in the first place. Mm, sure. And how to get to know these people. Uh, we've had people bemoan that they felt that there was favoritism or nepotism or that there was uh, some form of uh, affirmative action or something going on. And that's why they didn't get a job or that's why they you know, maybe should have gotten a job. Or You know, I appreciated it in this regard was Johnny Durango who said, fuck it, I'm going to start producing stuff. Yeah, that's true. And he's producing his own stuff that he's shooting. Like, I, I, I'm sure it's not the first time it's ever happened in history, but I'd never heard of a producer DP. Yeah, uh, and and kudos for him for for having the cojones to to actually just say I'm going to do this, and that's how I'm going to get work because I'm tired of losing out on jobs. And uh, but I know. think that a lot of it, uh, a lot of it comes down also to like if you went to film school. Who did you go to film school with? And a lot of the DPs, including uh, uh, we're not recording raps for this person, but somebody who we interviewed uh, tonight, who the contacts that he made in film school were his first uh, jobs as a DP. And you know what? I think that that's pretty much the way it should work. If you do well with people in film school who are all kind of thrown in together and you go beyond and uh, go above a beyond you, you really make it happen. Those should be the first people that hire you. That's kind of the way that the process should work. I think that's most of the DPs that we've spoken to who went to film school. Like again, I'm thinking about Larry Fong and all the people he went to art school with who ended up hiring him. You know, it's, it's not even the people that went to film school. It's the people who, you know, when you were doing the, the freebies, when you were doing the super low budget, when you were doing the stuff where it's like, Hey, everyone's got to pull together here to, to do something. You do a good job with that. Those People should try to reward you and help you. They should. And also, I think that it's important in reverse. So I'll say, like, when I'm doing something like my extraordinarily low-budget uh, web series, 20 Seconds to Live, and we get a DP like the aforementioned George Foyt to come out and shoot it, I feel like it's important not just as a human being 
probably primarily but as a pr human primarily as a human being yeah but also i think that it's important to remind george that i know that he's doing me a favor and that he's willing to show up for significantly less than he's worth but that doesn't make him worth less and uh, well, he also doesn't phone it in. And there are some other people who like, oh, I'm not getting my day rate, so I should just phone this in. Well, and, and those people shouldn't do it at all. They shouldn't. Um, Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, unless you're so desperate for money that you're going to take like a crappy position that doesn't pay very well. But, but regardless, you should do the absolute best you can possibly do in that position or you shouldn't be there. Yeah. There's a DP who I, I, I don't know that I've mentioned him on this show who I worked with once who is great. But the first day that I was on set, one of the ADs said, hey, ask him uh, what his favorite shot of all time is. Ooh, I've heard the story. And uh, it's a good story. And I was like, oh, you're you're hazing me. I'm not going to go ask him that. And they're like, no, no, ask him, ask him. So after a couple of days and I got to know the guy, I finally said like, hey, so uh, the AD said I should ask you what your favorite shot of all time is. And he kind of got like a knowing smile on his face. He's like, oh, yeah. My favorite shot of all time is the last one we do today because when we're done with that, I get to go home. And then he kind of looked at me and said, like, it's just not in my heart anymore. And to me, it was really ironic because I thought this this guy did unbelievably amazing work and also outrageously fast. And he was not a grumpy pants to me or to the crew, but he just wasn't enjoying himself. And I felt I felt bad for him. Uh, it's not really a politics thing. Uh, it is kind of a politics thing, though, because um, that person... Because I am telling this story right well, now. Well, I mean, uh, but beyond all that, that that person is taking a job that could be for someone who's, like, passionate and just, you know, can't wait to, to give it them all. But clearly his skill was so good that they were able to put up with someone who was curmudgeonly enough to say, you know, fuck this shit. I don't want to be here. And again, he was, he, that, I know, that, I know, that, I know. That I'm never, putting, I know I'm putting words. literally never wafted onto any of us. Okay. He, he was never anything but nice to the crew. Oh, okay. Well, he uh, just, uh, he just couldn't wait to go home. It, but it's like, after that was in my head, I was like, Oh, uh, I'm, I'm inconvenient. Like everything I asked for, I felt like I'm inconveniencing you. Whereas when I'm working with George, you know, he and I riff off of each other and, you know, it's like, oh, what if the shot was like this? Oh, what if the shot was like this? Oh, what if I did this? And, you know, and suddenly our enthusiasm for whatever the whatever the idea is kind of builds into kind of a cool thing, hopefully. You know, to me, that's infectious and fun. And that's what I want out of out of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful when you can have that. You can't always have that. Of course. Uh, but anyway, I think this is a really good topic. I think that uh, talking about the politics of a DP is uh, is something that we should probably revisit again, too, because I'm sure there's plenty of other stuff out there that I didn't just think of off the top of my head when we decided to go down this path and also name this whole section close focus spur of the moment spontaneously just like this. Thank you, George. Thanks, George Foyt. Uh, so, yeah, if you've got ideas, if you think that we should talk about some other sort of politics and you're tired of just me cussing in the microphone here because it's been a long day. Or you'd like us to talk about it and use swear words in or, the microphone. Yeah, that's a, that's OK, too. Send us an email. Send us an email and we'll uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it on the show and uh, or maybe get someone else to talk about it. Thank you, Todd McMullen. Thank you very much for uh, for suggesting this. And we, we will certainly cross this bridge again. So now let's go ahead and hear our interview with Sal Totino, who, as I recall in the interview, I call him Salvatore Totino, and he was nice enough to not correct me, but it is actually Salvatore Totino. Well done, sir. Thank you, Sal. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. 
All right, so uh, I'm here on a rare afternoon. We usually record these in the evening, not that anyone cares, with uh, amazing cinematographer uh, Salvatore Totino. I've, I've been following your career at least since I was in college in, in, the, in the mid to late 90s uh, was when I first heard about your work in uh, music videos and commercials. So thank you very much for coming out here to uh, for having me. to lovely downtown Burbank. And thanks for doing it in the middle of the day so I don't have to sit in traffic. I have a one-year-old baby. I'm just happy to get out of the house. <laughs> so uh, we always kind of start off with with a question that has been kind of slowly engineered, even though it's the same damn question, to uh, to just kind of get us on on the on a on a footing about aesthetics. And that question is this: when you're reading a script, you know maybe you have the job, maybe you're going to go meet with the director, but when you're just reading the script to yourself, what's going through your head? Is it is it something that is more lighting driven, or is it something that is more composition driven? When I first read the script, it's just about story. Mm-hmm. I try not to think about it in any visual capacity. I just try to see how the story will take me, how, mm-hmm. how I'm interested in the story, <clears throat> how uh, I'm interested in the characters. If I can get into you know a character's head by just reading the script, helps me you know later on with a visual idea of uh, where I might want to go. Do you find that you're uh, when you're on your initial read, and you're not really thinking, you're not thinking about the cinematic, you know, the nuts and bolts of how you're going to do what you're going to do. Uh, do you find that you're like thinking mostly about the story and and that, or are you thinking about point of view, or are you thinking about characters? Like, what's no, the... it's just about the story. I just want to, I want to be interested. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I want to feel moved somehow by it, uh, whether it's emotionally. Um, whether it's an adrenaline type of rush, or whether it's a fear, whether it's a passion, or, or a way I can relate to the characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know Cinderella Man was very much that. When I, when I read Cinderella Man's story, Jim Braddock, you know, he was on his way up, and the depression hit, and he lost everything. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a family, my parents came from Italy to America after the war, and the stories from the war of them not having any food and clothes and just living day by day is is has been ingrained in in my psyche and the way I grew up. You know, so food was a very big deal growing up, and and you know just living day by day. And when I was thirteen years old, I, I remember one time I said to my mother, well, you know, I want to go to the movies. Can I go? And she's like, Yeah, great. I'm like, All right, can I have a few dollars to go to the movies? She's like, I don't have any money. <laughs> go get a job and you could go to the movies. And I was, I was, all right. I went and got a job. You know, I, I wound up working a fruit store, delivering uh, vegetables, pizzeria delivering. I even worked at McDonald's, you know, and then kind of had other part-time jobs while I was in school. And that, you know, that s- struggle that Jim Braddock went through, y- you could really relate to. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, you're trying to make a better life. It's different for him, you know. He, he had kids, and he was, you know, had a farm out his kids at one point in in the story. But it resonated with me because when I did read it, I did have little kids and remember growing up and how I grew up, and uh, you know, so I, I felt a deep connection to Jim Braddock, and I was very excited about about doing the film. How um, often, when you're reading a script, though, do you do you find that you have a personal connection? I mean, that sounds like a serious personal connection you had to that. But are you looking for a personal connection? To- not always, not always. But like when I did People Like Us, that was, you could tell that that story was a personal story. Mm-hmm. And then when I met with the director, I had some great ideas after reading the script a couple of times. And I met with the director and I was very excited about it. And um, 
I was also like really hyper. That's how excited, you know, I get, I get, I could get like that sometimes. This is very energetic. And, um, you know, he told me, he's like, look, this is a fictionalized story based on my life. I was like, what do you mean? Because well, the character in the film was me. He said when he was 30 years old, a woman came up to him at a party and introduced herself as his sister. He had no idea that his father had previously had a family before. And, um, you know, he, he fictionalized this story mm-hmm. uh, and, and made this script about it. So it, had to, it felt very personal in a way, you know. Yeah. First Nixon, First Nixon felt personal too, just a struggle of, of, of those the two characters and what they were going through to get through it. So, you know, yes, I, to answer your question, I did relate to it in, in that way. Any given Sunday, my first feature film, I had no relationship with any of the characters. Yeah, I played some football growing up on high school. I always watched football. Not a diehard fan, but it was like, fuck, Oliver Stone's asking me to do my first feature film. And it was also the first feature film that he had done without Robert Richardson, right? Yes, and Bob wasn't available Mm -hmm. to do the film. And Oliver had a, a close relationship with my agent knew my agent before Bob was with him, and we were both represented by my agent at the time, Spiro Scores. And Oliver had said to Spiro, say, you know, you got any young and upcoming cinematographers? And he sent a bunch of reels over, and Oliver happened to like my reel. I went for a few interviews, and uh, next thing I know, I got the film. I didn't think twice about it either, which is the weirdest thing. You know, coming from Brooklyn and uh, growing up in a very tough neighborhood, you just... You know, every day was a survival. It was like uh, kind of growing up in the jungle. Well, um, also like Oliver Stone, you know, is is a director who's kind of known for being intense and demanding of, of uh, everyone who works with him. So, I mean, like, you know, I, I mean, I, I want to get to all of the films uh-huh. later, but like for your first feature, you went on to work with Ron Howard on several films. And, you know, I, I, I say this having worked a little bit with uh, Ron Howard myself. It's like you couldn't ask for a nicer person. It's not that he's... I mean, he's, he's pretty easygoing, but it's like, you know, he knows what he wants, but he's like super nice about everything. But Oliver Stone is someone who just has a reputation for like going after whatever he's going to get and getting it however he can. Yeah. Well, everybody works differently. You know, yeah. um, I don't fault Oliver for that. He, I, I think Oliver's probably one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. Oh, I'm not even saying you know, it's a fault. And, I'm and just and saying it's like, no, I know. That, I, jumping I, into the deep end right there. Yeah. On the first feature. But, but jumping in that way, I didn't think about it. Yeah, and think about it because of where I grew up and how I grew up. Uh-huh. So you know that's why I said like growing up in in Brooklyn at the time in the seventies was like in early eighties. It it was like the jungle. It was the strongest survived. So you know it's like every day you were up against something in one way or another. So you know going and doing my first film with Oliver, uh, I didn't have the f- any fear about it. It was like all right, this is what we got to do. You know, I had no idea what we were in for. Uh-huh. I soon learned. <laughs> Oliver said to me on the first day of principal photography, welcome to Vietnam. <laughs> um, and and I, I really respected that. Well, you shot a lot of that in Florida, right? Yeah. So yeah, it was all about as Florida as, and close to as hot as Vietnam. Not, yeah, 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 yeah it was. There. It was pretty hot, even though it was uh, January, February. <laughs> it was pretty hot on set. It was heated <laughs> on set often. <laughs> Um, well, let, let's uh, go a little bit into your background. Uh, you talked about growing up in uh, in in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. yeah, um, which is a very different place today. It's like you know, mm-hmm. it's full of artisanal mayonnaise shops and stuff. But, oh God! But uh, like, when did you decide that you were interested in in making films, and how did you go about doing it from that point of view? You know, 
I always liked things visual. Mm -hmm. I'm dyslexic. I always had problems in school. And, uh, you know, my parents with the the immigrant background we grew up with, you know, they really tried to push hard for college. If you don't go to college, learn a trade. So I wound up going to a trade high school. Mm -hmm. And I was very good at math. So I wound up taking college classes, college-bound classes in high school, which allowed me to go to college. And I went for two and a half years for engineering. I was born out of my my mind. So my house was like, you didn't make a living as an artist. There was no such thing. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, I, I went to work as an electrician and, uh, I fell into it. Really? Yeah, pretty much. I was going to, when you uh, say electrician, you went to work like uh, on, on films? No, as no, 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 no. You were, sets, no, I'm you were sorry. like wiring houses yeah, 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 or Wiring houses, electrical contractor. So how do you go about yeah. falling into? Well, it was a lot of things happening at the time and uh, you can hear a bunch of this stuff out there. So I'm going to just cut it short. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, affirmative action. I was going to become a police officer at one point. Because of affirmative action, I was waitlisted in the academy. Mm-hmm. I got two questions wrong on the test. And during that summer, uh, instead of going in the academy, January, uh, July 85, I was supposed to go in January 86, I was at a family function where a distant relative was there and he was working in a commercial company. And I was just fascinated talking to him. And he's like, well, come, come check out my job. So I came to the stage one day and I was like, holy shit, wow, how do you get into this? Um, How old were you at this point? I was 21. Okay. I was 21. And you were already out of college though. I was out of college, yeah. Okay. I had quit. I was just working for an electrical contract then, and then I was like, well, do I want to be a cop? All this sort of stuff kind of, you know, I was lost a little bit. And uh, I remember going to see, I think it was Weird Science, and uh, looking at the credits, and I saw production assistants in the credits, and I was like, holy shit, you know, PAs get credit. This is like incredible. Well, anyway, my relative, uh, his name was um, another Sal, Sal, Sal Pitisano. He, um, he had me come in f- to work for a day. So if you do good today, you can work the next two days. And, and I did. And, you know, I was like, what do I do? He's like, you just five minutes early, be very conscientious, use your common sense, and um, stay focused. And I did. Uh, at the end of the third day, the producer had asked me, hey, what are you doing next week? Are you available? <laughs> she's like you know are you working next week uh, like can you work with us next week i was like fuck yeah you know? <laughs> so i quit my job as an electrical with uh, the electrical contracting company and they were like what are you doing you know we're just giving you a promotion all this i was like you know i'm going in a different direction and uh, i never looked back what was it about uh what you saw there that like really sparked you i remember so i remember watching the cameraman light a mm-hmm. set and it was a, not even a set it was a duncan hines commercial it was a tabletop commercial like duncan the, hines food cake that's you know? like the most boring thing to watch well, someone do but it's so meticulous but it's not boring mm-hmm. you know if you can make something look really beautiful and you can have a, you know a macro shot of chocolate falling through the air at high speed that's lit it's poetic i, it's I agree just poetic. it's poetic you know i apologize no, 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 no. it's it's but like I, I it's get like that slow because, it's like you know a long day to get like exactly you know, everything I, and look I, yeah, how many movies we watch that we walk away and we go oh, this is boring it doesn't mean that you know, <laughs> I, I get what you're saying you know but it, i just i I've found, just, I found it six. sort of very poetic and it's inspiring yeah. i was like wow so, I mean, you could really do that mm-hmm. and um at that point i, I bought myself still camera there was a little dark room in the Flatiron District called 2020, you can rent them by the hour. And I started shooting black white film, taught myself how to print. So oh, I was wow. doing that for a while. So you're and self-taught. 
uh, self-taught on with stills. Mm-hmm. And then I I was always watching cinematographers on set. Sometimes I'd have a little notebook and do lighting diagrams and stuff. And I happened to meet a camera assistant by the name of Paul Gaffney, and he was assisting a cinematographer by the name of Jack Donnelly. Mm-hmm. And one day, it was just Paul and the DP, no second assistant or anything. They were shooting in this little house. On, I think it was on Long Island in Westchester. And I was like, hey, you need some help? You know, I'm really interested in camera. He's like, sure, sure, can you move those cases? And so I was like, sure, move those cases. <laughs> and we moved into another room. And then later, he just had me moving cases. And I realized he had me moving cases. And I didn't say a word about it. At the end of the day, he's like, look, I see you're serious. I'm prepping next week. Why don't you come to Panavision? <clears throat> start teaching you cameras and you know that following week I had my hand inside a camera <laughs> you know I was learning a whole new world and, th- and thanks to Paul and Jack and I worked with them and I trained with them for a while mm-hmm. and um, then I started working you know I was working as a second assistant a first assistant and that's where I met Harris Savides I was doing some non-union music video work with Harris in v- 1990 you know when everything just started to really blossom as, a, as an art form um, yeah, yeah, and, and that's where I really learned how to stand naked, to not be afraid, to just take a chance on things and put yourself out there and try different things. You know, you don't know whether something's going to work unless you try it, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and sometimes you fail, and that's good to fail because you learn from it. Um, so it's fun, you know. I I just can, fin- can you I give just, us a failure that you learned from. Oh, that was with Alex Proyas. Um, <laughs> I was we were doing a commercial, we shooting these Nest commercials, and there were two different commercials. We shot one big set, shot that for two days, and then we we're moving on to this other set, and we finished a little bit early on that set. And I was lighting this theater, and I was lighting it very dark. And Alex is like, "How dark is this?" You know, because he likes things dark. I'm like, "It's dark. It's, it's I'm on the edge." He's like, have you ever gone this far? I said, no, I've never gone this far. I said, are you okay? He's like, yeah, we're ahead of it. If, if it doesn't work out, we'll just fix it tomorrow. We'll just reshoot it. He saw the dailies before I did in the morning. He said, you found the edge and fell off. You know? And uh, I was like, okay, got to reshoot that. Um, you know, but I had I had the support of a director there. And um, yeah. that, that kind of made a difference. And I would not know how far to push that film. It was fifty two ninety six was the stock at the time. I remember that. Well, I would not know how far to push that film if, if I hadn't done that. And you know, experimenting that way, I just did. A fe- I just finished a feature film with a director by the name of Adanis Tanovic, mm-hmm. a Bosnian director. It's called Postcard Killings. Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Negan from uh, Walking Dead. Oh, I love the him. comedian from uh, from Watchmen. Yeah, exactly. A very, very talented uh, actor and um, a really interesting director. We shot on film. We shot in London, Sweden, Norway. And there's some flashback sequences where, you know, uh, Jeffrey's character is sort of piecing things together, these murders. So I decided to use a hand crank camera and... Like, Very, a, like a Bullex or no, like a thirty-five millimeter two C that Panavision had modified with a, a crank on it, so there's no motor, so I could crank it and I could vary my speed. But what was great about it was not just varying the speed, but going backwards and then forward. So I'm triple exposing the film and jumping 
the image around because Whoa. you're going backwards and forward and the camera's shaking a little. The, the editor of the first set of dailies was like, oh my God, this would have taken me weeks to, to put this together in the avid. This is incredible. It's like, well, what do you mean? This is what we used to do all the time in cameras. You know? <laughs> and, you know, it was only because I had played and experimented in the past that you're like, hey, you know what? Let me, let me use this old technique here. And a lot of that's disappearing today. With, with digital technology. You know, when I did uh, the band Live, Lightning Crashes, which launched them, we did all these in-camera double exposures. You can't do that digitally. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your music video work because, I mean, that was when I first started to be aware of, of your work. And you were doing it, like you said, in the 90s, where it's like the 80s is kind of the infancy of music videos. And then in the 90s, they got really interesting and experimental yes. and visual. And they... And and so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like that's when you're you're first going in and and, and shooting a lot of music videos. Yes, it was uh, in the early '90s, and I started shooting with Peter Kerr. I used to work with Peter Kerr. He's mm-hmm. amazing, Peter. I worked with Peter with Harris, and I used to sh- do some second camera stuff. And Peter liked my composition. And one day, on a New Order video, he had me shoot some second unit. And he really liked it. And he's like, "Well, you know, I'm going to get something for you to shoot one day." And shot these MTV promos and just started working with him ever since. And we used to do interesting creative concepts that, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't doing a music video. It was doing an art project. Yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting because people are like, oh, your music videos, you know, they, they were really much more personal that, uh, than a video. They were, they were an art project and that you felt that you were painting, experimenting, uh, trying different things, telling stories in a very different way. There was no ad agencies to dictate. There was no sort of rules or anything that mandated anything. You know, there's just a concept, and you follow that concept. You know, I did this um, Kingsley Own video, wasted time with Mark Pellington, and the the treatment was not even a paragraph long. He's like, this music is very energetic. Uh, I want to treat this like. A, or like a kind of a garage rehearsal, but I want to do it out in the wilderness because the music is so energetic that makes you want to just get down and fuck. <laughs> and um, it, and if you you know, so we went, we shot in Griffith Park in the woods in Griffith Park. We decided to shoot sixteen reversal to give it a little bit of a gritty look to that sort of that kind of dirty yeah fuck kind of energy. And um, I think that really portrays in that video and. It wasn't, there wasn't much to talk about. It's like, let's just shoot it and see what happens. All these crazy fans were there, these girls that were, you know, they were saying things about what they wanted to do to the band. It was insane. And we just kind of ran around with the cameras and filmed it. Um, turned into a great video. Like how, I mean, you know, I, I always wondered. Like, could you imagine, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Could you imagine doing a, almost doing a film that way or a TV commercial? Like, oh, we're just going to see what happens, you know? I mean, Mark was Mark knew enough about the band and the energy around that band to know that the extras and how they were going to behave, that he was going to get this very sexual piece out of it that was very energetic. So without being like you know pervertedly sexual about mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not pornographic at all. But I always wonder about a lot of those music videos, you know, because, you know, I've read a bunch of the treatments of music videos that were, you know, even mm-hmm. even made back then. And it's like they're not always 
like what you're describing is even like further further in this direction but they're not always like super specific but when you're when you're looking at those music videos today uh when, when you were doing them then uh how much planning did you have going into something like that or was it like we're going to make this crazy event and then you're just going to sort of be a documentary filmmaker going around and, and no shooting it wasn't a doc and it, you know that's the other thing you weren't a documentary filmmaker with yeah. that you know you lit it you thought about it mm-hmm. visually but you didn't have like a long schedule. You would no, have, have no, we week. shot that in one day. Yeah. A waste of time. But we, we scouted it and we talked. And we scouted it a week before we were going to shoot it. Almost a week before. And then we had a lot of dialogue about it. I worked yeah. with the crew about it, uh, with my crew on what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. You know, we hung cameras off of bungees from tree limbs and, nice. you know, things like that. You know, you, you prep them, you plan them, even though it feels like, you know, you're not exactly knowing what the day is going to be. But sometimes you're like, oh, gee, I just need you to do that over here because I'm lit over here. Mm-hmm. Like, would you walk in with like a shot list? Would there be more of a more of a written plan before you went in? Not on Wasted Time. Mm-hmm. There were more shot lists, like when I worked with Peter Kerr when we did uh, Secret Garden yeah. with Bruce Springsteen. You know, he shot listed it. And what he wanted and where well, like, he wanted to go. And then when you mentioned lightning crashes, like that video is yeah. it feels like a very constructed like it felt like a movie to me when I It when was I it was it. very constructed. And when Tom Foden was a production designer, Jake Scott was a director, um, and everybody sort of brought their visions and ideas mm-hmm. together. Uh, once again it was you know, we scouted a week beforehand, we shot a ha- an a, an abandoned house in the Adams district. There used to be a lot of them back then. Can't afford to live there today. Yeah, now they're all they're all they're all being restored. <laughs> exactly, but you know, we, we when we sat around, we talked about it, mm-hmm. and Tom Phone was like, "Look, I got this 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 idea of this room with these books, and we're gonna blow wind, and you know, we'll have some candles going on, and like, what if we?" And then I was like, "What if we double expose the film?" And you know, Jake had showed me um, a photographer. I can't remember exactly his name at the time. And, you know, we were kind of coming up with an idea of filming it in a little bit in that style. Mm-hmm. And that kind of went out the window <laughs> a little bit when we got there because things were just, um, it, it just couldn't kind of work that out because everything needed to be staged a, lo- a lot more. So we were going to take, you know, ND filters from the left and right side of frame and darken the frames. You know, cause back then it was a lot harder to do that stuff in post as well. And Jake had done a, a, a Katie Lang video, and he was like, look at this shot. I did this double exposure shot kind of coming down a hallway. And it was like, holy shit, that's fucking brilliant. Why don't we use that here with the angel? So the angel is like, in, in, in his treatment, it's like the angel comes and nobody really sees the angel. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, if, we're not, if they're not going to see it, why should we see it? So we decided to make it like a ghost. And we shot it all double exposure with oh, the angel. Cool. You know, that's kind of where that came from. It was interesting. It was a long day. It was a really long day. And obviously people still make a lot of music videos, but I sort of feel like that was kind of a golden age of music videos where I feel like every music video you saw was kind of competing to be more innovative visually or to use some new toy that had just come out or to hit you emotionally or, you know, like the, like you said, like kind of art projects. How, how many years did you spend uh, primarily doing that? I also know you did commercials too. Oh yeah, I did commercials in between it. And then I started doing feature films. I think Wasted Time was pretty much one of my last videos. Mm-hmm. I did another REM with Peter Kerr. We did a bunch of REM with him. But it was pretty much 
towards the end, and that was around two thousand and one, maybe. Wasn't was Something any given like Sunday ninety nine? Ninety nine, yeah. Yeah. Twenty year anniversary coming up. Wow. We might be doing a uh, a twenty year anniversary at Camera Homage this year. Oh wow. Yeah. So we're gonna do a little screening and a Q and A. Yeah. So ho- hopefully, uh, I'm working with Warner Brothers right now to get a print and trying to get a trying to get an updated print. Not not that easy. <laughs> So I don't know if you have an exact number here, but like how many, like if you can give me an idea, maybe it's just how many years of doing commercials and music videos well, did you do? Be- videos, uh, I would say I did videos for nine years. Mm-hmm. Nine years of me as a cinematographer on, on videos. And then- they, Was there any like being an AC or any? Or oh yeah, it was a whole that? bunch as an AC too, a few uh-huh. years before that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was a camera assistant on uh, the New York Persian Nine on Earth. Oh wow! Yeah, with Jim Jarmusch. Oh, that's that's cool. Jim was fucking great. We 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 just spent as Fred Elms was lighting this cab, we were freezing our ass off in January at night in New York City. Um, Fred and I mean um, Jim and I talk just spent a lot of time talking about Tom Waits. I'm a big Tom Waits <laughs> fan, and uh, Tom was very Tom's work's very inspirational to me, and uh, and Jim obviously you know they're personal friends, so it was a uh, a big treat for me, not just to be able to work with Jim, but also to sit around and talk about Tom Waits while Fred Elms was lighting. <laughs> <laughs> All of that. That actually sounds like a Tom Waits song about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Ily in the background. Oh, he did? In here, in Hollywood? No, no, in California. In Marin? Yeah. I, I play a scandalous amount of Tom Waits for my son. He's he's one. Uh, yeah. He just turned one. Yeah. My at one point, my wife was like, "Can you just play something that isn't like a dreary song about a one-legged hooker form just <laughs> once?" We gotta play some Nick Cave then. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we'll yeah. we'll move on to Lucinda Williams. I'm just gonna keep it all as depressing as possible. There you go. Um, cool. <laughs> I might have to listen to Lucinda on the way home today. <laughs> It'd be a long drive. So uh, after after doing uh, you know assisting then uh, then getting into the music video world and you said it was like the early nineties like was it around nineteen ninety that you started shooting? I st- I made a transition from AC to DP in uh, April nineteen ninety three. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. So uh, let me ask you this, and and it's kind of two two pivots that that I see here. So at one point, like you know, before you even really knew about the business, then you kind of get into uh, in into the camera world and stuff like that. At what point did you decide you wanted to be a DP? And then at what point in being oh, the a DP? first day? Really? Yeah. I like I said, I, I was watching that cinematographer. His name was Ed Norton. <laughs> Ed Norton? Yeah, exactly. Right. That, like, Man, that guy can do stuff. anything. He was English. He was English. And the director was Patrick Morgan. It was a company called Fairbanks Films before mm-hmm. uh, the Scots started RSA USA, their commercial company. And the Scots were there too. A lot of John Paul Good was there, a lot of European directors. It was really interesting, creative. So you, I mean, like, you know, commercial. What did you say? It was like your uncle or something? Uh, My co- uh, second cousin. Your second cousin. Yeah. Like, he was working for a pretty classy outfit. Yeah, he was. He yeah, was. Like he brought- uh, and what the fuck did I know? You know, because <laughs> come from Brooklyn. It's like, I'm, I don't So at what point in doing, uh, you know, shooting uh, uh, music videos and commercials and stuff, did you start deciding you needed to set your uh, focus on doing features? Oh, no. I decided that when I wanted to become a DP. Really? Oh, yeah. You know, I want to see my work visually as a story. So right then and there, I, I saw a whole new life. I saw a life that I never knew existed. It was possible from where I grew up. You know? 
Mm-hmm. The only the only film uh, inspiration I had growing up was a couple of times on a Sunday. There was a, this theater in Brooklyn called the Walker Theater in Bensonhurst on 18th Avenue. And Sunday afternoons, they used to have Italian films. So once in a blue moon, my parents would take the family, you know, and I'd be eight years old, 10 years old, seeing, you know, a Fellini film. Oh, wow. Which was uh, pretty incredible at the time. But, you know, it was an eight-year-old kid on a summer spring Sunday when you could be outside playing baseball with your friends and you'd be dragged to the movies. Yeah, you know? I don't know when I was eight if yeah. I would have been in the yeah. Fellini kind of mood myself. Yeah. And it was, it, look, it was very rare that we ever got, got out or went out. You yeah, know? So yeah. it, was, um, it was a treat in that sense. So uh, so your first feature, uh, as we talked about, is Any Given Sunday. Mm-hmm. L- let's go into a little bit more detail because to me, like the, the essence of what we're trying to do here, and I think what a lot of our listeners love to hear, is sort of your creative process, how you work with a director, how, how you tackle the material, n- no pun intended, and uh, you know, like how you get into, uh, in, into it. So Oliver Stone loved your reel, you know, decided to hire you to do any given Sunday. What was the process of like turning that script into the movie as it was? Well, for me, the big thing about that film, and, and if you ever watched sports films before that, the cameras always observe it. And I really felt like I wanted to be, I wanted you, the audience, me as well, to feel like what it's like to be on a field. Yeah. So I drew a lot of inspiration from Raging Bull. That's a good one. You know, Raging Bull, you know, the camera was in the ring with Jake LaMotta, and you really sort of felt that emotion. So I wrote, I kind of wrote out a treatment with my dyslexia, uh, and we had, I had given it to second unit at the time, and um, the producer and Oliver, and we had a meeting before we started filming, uh, and Oliver wasn't there. He wasn't in Miami yet. It was me, the producer, Clayton Townsend, and then second unit, and the second unit director, Helen Graff, looked at the paper and threw it on the table. It was like, what, what is this? This is not how you shoot football. We're going to shoot the football, and you're going to shoot the actors. It's like, okay. You know? And I just was, you know, I've never been in this situation before. So That's kind of, it takes some balls to say that to the first unit. Well, yeah, but, but, but the director wasn't there, you know, and, uh. and he was also like, who the fuck's this guy? He hasn't done anything before anyway. Yeah. So... I was taking my lead off of Clayton, just kind of kept quiet. And afterwards, Clayton's like, don't worry about it. (laughs) And sure enough, when uh, we were shooting sort of similar locations or at the uh, practice stadium and second unit was there, we would just roll up on them and start shooting. We took over and we started basically shooting my treatment. And we took, I took the camera and put it in the game. Or well, if I had the camera running, I'll, I'll never forget, like one time the camera's running along the sidelines on the, on the lens, Mitch Dubin was operating, and I jumped onto the dolly as it was moving, and I started shaking the, the base, you know? And it, Mitch opens his other eye, and he's holding it, he what the fuck are you doing? I'm like, just keep going, keep going, you know? And I kind of kept giving it this little jolt, and yeah. you know, you feel that in the film. You know, so it was all that, and you know, taking the camera handheld, Jimmy Muro, he had this little lightweight steady cam he made. He was running in the plays with the players, and it changed. It changed sports photography from that moment on. And it was interesting because when we finished, second unit kind of wanted to take take their hands off of it, and then the film came out, and everybody's trying to take credit for it, <laughs> uh, which is really funny, I think. <clears throat> I uh, it doesn't matter to me in that way, but I think it's it was important that I did get to bring that vision to it, and and it did change. It did change sports photography 
ever since then, and people started to look at it differently. Even the NFL, you know, I had wires running off the stadium to hold cameras up that I could run like 20, 30 feet with. Yeah. You know, they were just handheld, but they were taking the weight off it so you could run quicker. You know, they came up with the, the uh, wire cam that they, they use in, <laughs> the, in the NFL. Now, that wasn't, I'm not saying that we're responsible for that, but yeah. I think that that film. I mean, you could I, definitely I, say you put the thought in their head that it's. Uh, a, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think the film did. Yeah. yeah. I think the film did. Um, it, it put the thought in a lot of people's head in different ways. Also, when I think about that movie, too, I always think about how uh, the lighting is kind of expressionistic when you're in the game. Like, you know, like if you're watching a regular football game, which I really don't, but I, you know, every now and then get trapped at a Super Bowl party. It's like, you know, every it's like circle of fire light. But yes. I remember like you'd have light on half of their faces yeah. or it'd be, it was like pretty extreme. And it to me was simulating like what it must feel like to be in there as opposed to like what it would look like if you, you got were f- you got 280 pounds coming at you faster than you know, I, I weigh 185 faster than I can ever run my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, so 280 pounds and wanting to kill you, hit you <laughs> fucking hard and send you. <laughs> back to the locker room if you're lucky alive, you know. So uh, I, th- I thought it was important that, yes, the camera had the energy, the lighting had, had that sort of focus of what that feels like, you know. What I, was I the- think it kind of narrows your vision down in a way. For sure, yeah. 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 No, I, I remember looking at it and just being like, it's gorgeous. I saw it, you know, in the theater, but it, but it was like, that's not what football looks like, looks like, but it's kind of what it must feel like to but, be like. Yeah. And, and that's the thing for me. Doing that film, it was like, I want you to feel what those players are feeling. Is that something that you do a lot when you're prepping a feature, like to to kind of cr- use photography and lighting to kind of create a sense of empathy with whatever's going on in the movie? Whether it's empathy or angst or mm-hmm. um, nervousness. Uh, yeah. yeah, very much so. Because like, I often feel like you know, a, a cinematographer's job sometimes is to figure out how to translate these moods and feelings and stuff into like you know yeah we need to have a techno crane over here and a you know condor and blah 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 um you know so it's like figuring that out and when you when it you know it's easy for me to look at it and be like what a cool idea but like that's it you know it it takes a lot of effort to light a big scene like that and it takes a lot of foresight and and imagination i I would imagine yeah well you spend a lot of time you're prepping you're not you, you go shoot a feature film you could have weeks if not months of prep yeah. before that film. And you're spending a lot of time going over that script and going over the script and dialogue with the director and the production designer and trying to come up with ideas to, yeah. to help tell the story. You know, I, I forget. I was watching a film the other night. I forgot what film it was. But I, I remember, like, there was a shot on this this kid. And I was like, and the camera was static. And there was a, a moment of emotion with the kid. And I just felt like, oh, I want to push that camera in. He should be pushing in right now. Why isn't he pushing in? You know, um, you know. And you think about those things when you're reading a script, and yeah. or you watch a rehearsal of, of a film, uh, the read through. Sometimes the read throughs are just actors just reading the lines, and sometimes they bring something to the read throughs. On Frost Nixon, it was really interesting. Everybody sat down at the table and Sam opened up their scripts, and Sam Rockwell kept his closed. He'd memorize it already. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I you love, know, I love and, and that. you see that, you're like, oh fuck, am I in for a ride on this one? <laughs> this is going to be great. That's and it was, a you know, power and, move. and we brought we brought some some energy into it. You know, well, you know, that was a thing Ron said to me. So how we how how are we going to make this interesting? 
do you see the do you see the interviews? Do you see the interviews? And I started to watch the interviews and I shut them off and I was like, No. No, I'm not gonna watch the interviews. I'm not gonna allow it to sort of cloud my mind. Yeah, you're not making a documentary about well, those. Well, no, you you're can... not. But a lot of times, when you you know, you do do your research and you go back in history when you're doing something historical, and it is influential, or it's not. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important to really understand that. And there's times that you might want to take that and be a little bit more documentary about it. But I I kind of was thinking about it, and I said, Ron, I said, Ron, this is no different than Cinderella Man. He's like, what do you mean? I said... Oh, he said like this, Sal, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you think? How are we going to do this? <laughs> I love Ron's energy. Ron's 10 years older than me, and he's got energy of somebody 20 years younger. Uh, he's yeah. amazing. So he, I was like, well, you know, if you think about the two opponents preparing the battle, you know, they're training for a championship match. And that's kind of the philosophy we use in approaching for us next time. No, it totally makes sense. And yeah. I feel like, you know, like, well, in, in uh, Rush, which I know you didn't work on, but was also written by uh, Peter Morgan. Yeah, Peter Morgan. Yeah. Who, uh, who wrote Frost mm-hmm. Nixon. And, and what I appreciate about all of those movies is it's not, it's not really uh, a protagonist. And I mean, I guess it is protagonist antagonist, but it's not like good versus bad. It's more, it's more like, you know, we have these equal forces and we're going to see them clash against each other. You know, and the, he also wrote The Queen, mm-hmm. which was kind of the same same kind of a thing. Um, but there was one evil person there. Who, and, and you feel sympathy for him as well. Nixon. Oh. Yeah. Well, I, yes. Uh, you've, you, but I feel like what they what he did brilliantly was kind of to humanize him to a great degree. And I feel like, like watching it, I mean, I, I was born, I think, the year Nixon was run out of office. Uh, or maybe a couple of years before. And so I don't have any, you know, memory of Nixon as like a really a public figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but watching that and seeing Frank Langella in that role, which obviously he had done on Broadway for God knows how many years at that point, you know, like he really inhabited it. And you really you, you do feel sorry for him a little bit because you because you because you're able to kind of grasp his point of view. Like he's not a force of evil. He's he's the guy we're we're trying to we're trying to trap him or we're trying to uncover the truth um, when you're when you're making a movie like that with uh, with something like Frost Nixon, is is there an approach to the way that you photograph? Like, is there a way that you photograph, you know, him versus Frost in terms of like, do, are you trying to using using your tools to make us sympathize with for him, or are you trying to what? What do you is there? No, an I, d- to- I didn't. I didn't. I, I think I, I've photographed them both in the very same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that film. I gave it a look, mm-hmm. and I stuck with that throughout all the characters. I didn't try to change it up and try to make it, you know, um, more psychological for one versus the other. I think the only little difference you see is um, in the drunken phone call, which we did live, uh, two different stages next to each other. Oh, that's cool! Two different sets, two two cameras on each set, and the phone call was live. Um, so I wasn't. You know, I oversaw the other two cameras, but I was on stage with Frank, and I operate. I always operate a uh, you know a camera, usually the B camera. Um, so I was there operating. So uh, the shots aren't quite the same. You know, I did I did have some foresight over it, but I had operators as well. So there's a little bit of a difference there with the characters, but I felt it was really important for me since Nixon. You know. Um, 
he was the one who initiated that phone call. He was the one who was drunk. Yeah. And I really wanted to be, you know, more inside his moment there. And I think subconsciously the fact that I wasn't on set and and Ron was more on the set with with Frank that Michael Sheen was a little out on his own. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't intentional, but I think, you know, you kind of feel a sense of shock and surprise from Michael Sheen that he got that phone call and the fact that he was almost there alone, you know, with the opera. I mean, he wasn't alone. I mean, there was a crew there, but he wasn't with the director and the cinematographer. He wasn't with the usual. that's interesting. So, you know, not until afterwards I realized, you know, I mean, did we do him an injustice by doing that or did it really, you know, unconsciously, you know, I think unconsciously it added to the film. It really added to the film and and his uncomfortableness and his kind of awkwardness a little bit of getting that phone call and not quite making, you know, making of it in a way. It's like, you know, what, what the fuck is this? You know, um, were you thinking about how that was going to impact Michael Sheen when you? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. And now that I start talking about it, and I, I'm, you know, I remember visually very much that day, and I remember, you know, my operators on that on that set, and we had a monitors. We had monitors with us on the other set, but I, you know, I didn't think about that until this for this moment. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder today if I really think about it, whether I would have. So done the same thing or would have went back to Ron and said, hey, Ron, you know, I don't think we could leave him alone like this. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, we were all very nervous a little bit about Frank because Frank, um, I didn't get to know Frank until after the movie. Really? It was really interesting because Frank insisted on being called Mr. President. So it was really odd mm. that he would walk, we'd be on set stage waiting for Frank to come and all the other actors are there and you know my, Matthew McFadden and Sam Rockwell and Michael Sheen everybody was really close and it, you know some laughter going on and all of a sudden like you'd, God, everything would stop and you turn around and Frank Langella would be on, in the corner of the room just pacing like Nixon was pacing really was really weird and it would just suck the air immediately out of the room so you were kind of like on edge sometimes around Frank and I'd be on camera I was always my camera I would always make sure I was on Frank when I was doing two cameras I remember the hair on my neck standing up like thinking I was with, with Nixon <laughs> oh, and that's incredible when that happens and not until afterwards I, that I you know get to know Frank and you know see what a wonderful man he was and he was nothing nothing at all like Nixon but man he was so into that into the character. He just lived in that guy's skin for he so long. He lived in it in an amazing way. And, it, you know, it's kind of wonderful. You're like, wow, I just got paid for this? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I did bring a lot to this, but I actually just walked away with an experience. No clue that that was going to happen. Or that I think about it and then go, well, fuck, man, I'm really lucky. <laughs> I mean, I could have been, you know, you know, I would have done in my 20 years already. I would have been retiring from the police force. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. All right. So bef- before we go any further, uh, we have a question from former cinematography podcast uh, guest, Johnny Durango, who, who was actually just here the other day for Cinebeer. And so Johnny's question for you is, in all your years in the business, who you think is the best union driver? <laughs> Who's your best union driver? Well, that depends what kind of driver we're talking about. Are we just talking about um, 15 passenger driver or um, 
there's always junior when it comes to that, but or are we talking about precision drivers? I have a lot of favorite precision drivers. Let's go with precision drivers. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to guess that Johnny was probably at some point your driver. And that is probably... Oh, maybe? Oh, that's and a good question. Driver, now he's a DP? Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. I love that. Um, so, sorry, Johnny. No, you were not my favorite driver. Uh, <laughs> oh, Johnny. Denied. Sorry, Johnny. Yeah. Um, Reese Witherspoon. Mike Johnson, Brett Fletcher, mm-hmm. um, Mike Majeski, all those guys are great drivers and I love working with them. Well, and you did- uh, Precision drivers. For uh, Speaking of precision drivers, obviously you shot Changing Lanes, which mm-hmm. has uh, a bit of a, a driving thing. Yeah, I'm maybe not just much using, though. Using it as a cheap segue. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just yeah using it's, a, it's a cheap segue. Very cheap. <laughs> it's okay. But was that your second This feature? is my second film, yeah. But you know what's interesting? After any given Sunday and the craziness of that film, I came home and was like, what, this is the feature world? Fuck this. I ain't doing this. This is just crazy, you know? My wife was like, who are you? I don't know who you are, you know? Because every, you know, we were working like 70, 80 hour weeks. Yeah. And, you know, you it took every ounce of energy to survive. And that's what Oliver meant by Welcome to Vietnam. So, you know, you kind of had to really hold back and, and uh, hold yourself together. And so my wife was just like, Man, I don't know who you are. So when I came home, I was like, you know, I don't know about this feature world. And I, uh, a bunch of scripts would show up. My agent would be like, hey, look. Well, now that you did. I was like, no. No, really. I'm gonna do commercials for a while. Start doing commercials. I guess I always imagine that the commercial world is more brutal and hours are longer than on a. No, on a no, they're not. They're you know they could be long, they could be short. The the thing is just like you know they. Could I've been be working on the wrong commercials. One day they could be thirty days. You yeah. Know? Uh, so it varies, and you you're in different countries and different cities a lot, and you're in your own cities. So, you know, I I kind of wanted to stay away from it a little while, and then Lara Sackett was representing me at the time through scores. You know, one day she's like, look, I got the script Scott Rune is producing. Um, I have a read about it. Uh, read it and see if, if you like it. And I started to read the script and the whole opening script of the script was this pigeon flying in the air and a hawk from nowhere in New York City. There's hawks all over the city, by the way. There are? Uh, comes out of nowhere. and I guess there's a lot of mice. And kills this pigeon. Mm. And the blood sort of drips down from the sky and lands on this coffin. And the way the way that opening scene was written was really it was so poetic and just sucked me in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in this. And that's you know, so my, you, it was also my kids were, you know, when I did any given Sunday, I only had my daughter at the time. And then my son was born in 2000, so I had two little kids at the time. You know, so. It was, also, the idea of going on feature films and going away for six months. You know, I think if I look at all the films that I've been offered and I didn't do because of family reasons, you know, my career would be in a very different place right now. If I had to go and do it all over again, I'd still do what I did. You know, it's more important to me to be a father. Um, it comes home at the end of the day and my kids have a relationship with and I have a relationship with them. At the end of the day when I die, I don't want a bunch of strangers up there saying all these nice things about me and my kids just sitting there quiet. I want my kids up there, the ones that are gonna be talking about me after I'm gone. So, you know, I stood away from it for a while. But Changing Lanes, I, I kind of, you know, my wife and I talked about it. I was like, look, it's this film. I really want to get back at the films. You know, we'll, you know, we're not gonna be doing films back to back to back. You know, it was because at the time. How much, the, how much of an interval of time was between any given Sunday and Changing Lanes? Two years. Yeah. 
And were you seriously like that. thinking about just not doing features? Well, I, at that point, I just wasn't thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, like I said, when I first came off Any Given Sunday, I was staying away, and then I just stopped thinking about it. I was just doing commercials, and you know, I had two little kids at home, so it's running home uh, after work and dinner and bath time and stories and oh, yeah. all that kind of great stuff. That, exactly. that was my focus. You just described at the time. my life. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a really wonderful, uh, and don't ever take it for granted. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. My kids right now are 22. My son's almost 19. And oh, wow. I have such a different, you know, it's a different relationship now that they're older. And, you know, uh, it's it's great. It's great. It, it evolves and changes in every moment. It's just, even when it's really hard, it's really special. Hmm. I think I needed to hear that. I do have one one other question about Oliver Stone before we mm-hmm. get out of it because I've heard him describe like the way that he goes about like covering a scene or the way he shoots is kind of like camera as Ouija board like he he kind of goes where it wants to take him like intuitively did you find that to be the case on any given Sunday or is that I because mean, any given Sunday also in a lot of ways to me feels like more of a for him a, a pretty standard straightforward narrative you know, like previously yeah. that was U-turn, I think, which was super psychic. Yeah, U-turn. Frankly. Yeah, it wasn't. The, the, this film wasn't that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that. It needed to be a little bit more straightforward in that sense. So there was no, there was no real craziness. There was just one sort of s- shot that he wanted to do uh, at the press conference with this crane move that just kind of sounded crazy. But I was like, well, that sounds crazy, but let's fucking try it. <laughs> you know, and uh, it was interesting. It was really interesting. But no, it wasn't that there were other craziness that were going on in that film. That Well, yeah, there were some, uh, some, some characters in the movie itself, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. My first feature film, I got Al Pacino, my yeah. lifetime idol. It's right? pretty amazing. And Margaret, who wreaked havoc on me as a little boy. <laughs> well, you know, movies, right? Charlton Heston's in it. Dennis Quaid, uh, Matthew Modine, James Woods, Cameron Diaz. Now, I had worked with Cameron when she was 19 years earlier when I was a camera assistant on a Nivea commercial for French television. With Harris was the DP. We were in Hawaii shooting Cameron. So, you know, I, he's, I knew Cameron from then and then around Hollywood and stuff. You know, Jamie Foxx, LL Cool J. You know, just to name a few. And this is my first feature film. Yeah. And some pretty big players. It's interesting. It was really exciting. Really exciting. And fucking crazy. <laughs> so was was changing lanes uh, less crazy as Oh, it was so much calmer. Has anything been as crazy as any given Sunday since any given Sunday? No. <laughs> no, no. Not, not not on that level. Things were like a little hard and difficult. Uh, Everest wasn't easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of challenges there. Uh, it was fun to make, but it wasn't. You know, nothing nothing that can ever come close to war. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a baptism by fire. <laughs> it was. It really was. So I mean, Changing Lanes though is one of those movies I think that people still refer to often today. Like, I, you know, I, f- I feel like it's it's a movie that kind of stuck in people's heads. That it, it has some kind of a some kind of a I, I don't know there's something zeitgeisty about it mm. from from when it was made and when you were reading it like what were what were the impressions what were the things that were really sticking with you on on that movie and and did you set any like challenges for yourself to change it up or do it differently than you'd done the previous feature 
Well, this is a very different story. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Know? Yeah. So I was also working with a, a different type of director altogether, Roger Michelle, theater director, independent films, um, very uh, much a character, um, actor, director. So he kind of left a lot of it up to me. That was going to be actually be my yeah. question. Like, you know, someone who's like very, very actor focused. Uh, did they, did he let you, uh, he did. We talked a lot about it though, mm-hmm. you know? So we talked a lot about some ideas and everyone's was like, well, I kind of want to have this. And, you know, he was really insistent on the camera starting to move more erratically as the, as the tension started building up mm-hmm. and, and we had the camera on these kind of isolators to kind of agitate them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, that was, that was a, a big thing in that film. In that way, but it was a polar opposite, making changing lanes versus any given Sunday. <laughs> polar opposite. And polar opposite. It's like shortly after that that you start working for Ron Howard, right? Yeah. What happened was in 2002, uh, Ron was prepping the Alamo, and I think Rodrigo Pietro was going to shoot it, or they were trying to get Rodrigo, and then one of his normal directors became a, um, was doing a project, and he went to go do that, and. The script was very slow, and they were trying to find a way to bring energy into it. And Todd Hollowell, uh, Ron's line producer. I know Todd very well. Yeah, you know Todd. So Todd said, you know, he brought me up to Ron, and Todd said when he went and saw Any Given Sunday, he walked out of the movie theater at the end of the film, bought another ticket, and went back in, (laughs) you know, which is really surprised that he bought a second ticket. That you know really took him, and, and so he suggested me to Ron about bringing you know trying to bring some energy to the Alamo. So I met with Ron. Uh, we had a couple of meetings, and then I was hired on to start working on the Alamo. And then Ron, uh, for some reason, it didn't work out or something. He left the project, and I left the project with him, and we parted ways. He said, "Well, thank you very much. You know, maybe someday we'll see each other." Uh, and then a couple months later, he called me up and he's like, look, I got this movie called The Missing, uh, you know, love to work with you on it if you're interested. So I was like, yeah, great. You know, so we went, uh, 2003, January, February 2003, basically, we started filming uh, The Missing. After the first week of filming, I, I worked so hard. I just was really trying to make a good impression. I was really into the story. You know, Ron was on rehearsals on location before we started filming, so I really got to sort of see and start sh- shot listing and sitting down and talking to him about it. So it was, it was kind of very energetic. And at the end of the first week, you know, the first two weeks of the film, we were up at the ranch, and we always said, look, we want the lighting, you know, the weather to be a certain way, so let's not shoot. If it's really sunny, let's go inside and shoot and just try to shoot outside in a good light. So we were moving on Friday, we were moving inside a barn, and I was lighting something, and Ron says to me, hey Sal, can you come over here, I want to talk to you. And I was like, oh fuck, this is Friday, the uh, the first week. I'm like, I killed it, I'm like, I I think I killed it. You know, I had a great week, I mean the studio's happy with the dailies, and I'm gonna get fired. You know, because I, I, I was so this this twenty foot walk to the corner of this barn we were filming and like took forever. My heart was in my stomach. Oh no! You know, and I was like, "Hey Sal, um, I got this script called Cinderella Man about this boxer, and I'd like you to read it." And I just looked at him and said, "I'll do it," <laughs> just knowing that I wasn't going to get fired. You know, um, and I don't know why I thought that. You know, because there was always this, you know, this. You know, thing out in Hollywood that I think you get fired the Friday of your first week, 
Yeah, and studio doesn't like dailies. Always make sure your first week of dailies are really good, you know? And I was like, fuck, these dailies are so good. You know, we had a great week. I moved so quickly. Ron had done um, Beautiful Mind before that, and Roger shoots single camera. And, you know, if you know Ron, it's that's hard for Ron. Ron likes the coverage. And, you know, so here I am shooting two cameras. We're out in the elements. We're in snow. It's really cold. You know, you're sliding down hills. You're in mud. It's all this crazy stuff. You know, it was hard. It was physically hard. And you're operating. And I'm operating one camera. Will or not was my my operator. And um, I was like, holy shit. I can't believe this. I mean, he's got some high... I, I can I can't reach that kind of bar, but mm. when he said that to me, I was so relieved and so happy. Did you ever to tell? this day I tell him that story and he just he doesn't believe me. He doesn't <laughs> believe. Me. Well, like so, Ron's reputation out there is is that he's somebody who like draws the best out of the people that he works with. Like he encourages you to kind of steer mm-hmm. into in, into your uh, things. I mean, I, I can tell you later sort of my, my story of working with him in that regard. Like one of the things that I love that I, I, I've always heard about him and I've, I found to be true is that like if he has an idea and you have an idea and he f- decides that your idea is about as good as his idea, he'll do your idea. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about collaborating with somebody the, the like that? The thing about Ron and what's so great about Ron and you say about him drawing out the best in people is because Ron leads by example. Mm-hmm. Ron just doesn't think, oh, you're here and you should do the best. Ron works so hard that unconsciously drives you to work harder. Yeah. You know, it, it drives you to bring out the best in yourself because that's what he does. That's the way he is every day. He's been in this business for 60 years now. I know, it's crazy. And every day is like his first day on set. He's so excited. He's so driven. He's so prepared that you elevate your own game unconsciously just because of it. It's great. It's nice working with somebody like that. And you worked with him on like what, five or six movies? Eight. Eight. Wow. So you worked with him on eight separate projects. Mm-hmm. And have you worked with any other directors that on that many big projects? No. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think, it, you know, it, it, it's amazing. And one of the things that's amazing about uh, both Ron Howard and your work with Ron Howard is that I feel like he jumps around genres and does stuff. He doesn't. He doesn't stay in the same world. No, he doesn't. Obviously, in the Da Vinci Code movies, you know, those are a continuous. But, story. but even those films, they're continuous stories. But the the three films do not look alike, you know. And it was a different time, mm-hmm. and we wanted it to feel different. It was a different time for that that character, and we wanted it to feel different in that way. So we have a listener question from Adam Beck. His question is, out of every project that you've done, uh, what is your favorite shot or scene and why? Mm, That's kind of difficult to say that you have one specific favorite. I have a bunch of different things that I like, especially Cinderella Man. Mm -hmm. Cinderella Man, each fight with Jim Braddock, we try to make different. Or each moment that he was within the fight, I really tried to bring the audience into his psyche. So there were times I was changing cameras with different types of lenses or um, I was using IMOs with Nikon lenses or an an old 2C inside a tire that was being punched. Um, (laughs) You know, things like that. I love nothing more than hearing that kind of stuff. Or, you know, my favorite, another favorite part of that was uh, there's a painter named George Tucker. And George does this kind of um, governmental type of institutionalized paintings of people inside booths Mm -hmm. so to speak and you know there's like the 
and also people in subways. And there's this weight and depression, stick look on people's faces. And there's one particular painting where there's a woman looking through like a, a hole in a glass window, like a, like what used to be at the banks before um, before all the uh, armed robberies. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, with the production designer, Wynn Thomas on Cinderella Man, we really talked about George Tooker being an inspiration for the relief office. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I, I feel really good about that because I really took the, that the inspiration from that painter brought it into the scene of the film and i think you know it adds you know it adds to it in a, in a good way so yeah that's that's one of my favorites um do you I, find yourself doing that a lot like looking for inspiration from like you've, you've mentioned the photography and painting like do, yeah. you, do you look at a lot of like still art as a I, sometimes still art i look I listen to music mm-hmm. you know tom waits and nick cave i was saying you know they <laughs> They have a way of telling stories that invoke a feeling in you, and I try to take those feelings and turn them into, you know, or you might see something, you walk past somebody on the street or see something that just looks in a certain way that is inspiring, that, that, that kind of burned an image in your mind. So, yeah, I draw on, on, on all those, um, and I draw on them in different ways for different projects. You know, it's interesting, like on, on, on Frost Nick, on uh, Frost Nixon, on um, Postcard Killings, which I just finished, um, in the film, he has to go to London and he, he identifies his daughter's body. And his ex-wife comes to London like just shortly after and she wants to see the daughter and he won't let her. And I really remember my, my mother's brother killed himself when I was like 13 years old and my father and my uncle had to go identify the body and my mother wanted to go and my father would not let her go because he did not want my mother's last image of her brother, of his swollen body, mm-hmm. you know, in the morgue. She wanted, he, my father was protecting my mother. He wanted for her to remember her, him, in the last way she, she saw him. And, you know, so it was like, how, how do I tell that? How, you know, and how, how do I, I bring that feeling into it? In, uh, in the postcard killings, you know, and I did, so I did a little move around and sort of a little push in, just a little bit low on him. And I, I, I think I think I kind of expressed that. And I hope I hope that comes across in that way. I mean, is there um, I, I'm, I guess I'm always kind of looking for the creative process. But is there like when you're so you're connect- Well, you know, that's that, that is a creative process. You, you're drawing on a personal experience. But like, how do you take the personal experience and and turn it into an idea for a shot like that you know it's it's kind of interesting i i i don't know if that's just in your mind Mm -hmm. if it's the philosophy that's just in your mind and it you know because you feel that and you do a camera move that that you know and you've done that move in a certain way that that portrays that Mm -hmm. does the audience feel that you know i haven't taken any polls afterwards i just know i walked away from it going I think I think I, I I portrayed that, and you operated that shot too, I assume. Yeah, and you know, so it's it's, it's interesting. I and mean, so like a lot of times when I operate, because especially with Ron, you know, I'll get on that B camera and I'll start. You know, you could tell like in the dialogue, he's not going to use this one section. He'll be on the other actor for that. Yeah. So I might pan off the actor and go down to his hands and do go to something that he might be doing. Or she, and when I said he, I yeah. I just mean the actor, 
that will help tell that story. So I'm grabbing these little moments here and there, and, and because I operate, I have that sort of liberty to do that. Uh, I think you know, that, that's another reason why I like operating, because you know, I find little personal bits that I could try to help push, put pieces together. Works sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Is there any cost since you're operating B camera and there's another camera, and I'm, I assume mm-hmm. on a lot of your shoots there's multiple cameras, Always that, that you're not able to watch all the cameras at the same time? I'm on them. Uh, I really do watch the other cameras. So you're operating and you're watching like uh, a Yeah, I'll go back and look at oh, it. You play or, you know, I have operators that I really trust that I work closely mm. with. Or I have a, a remote head on a camera and I can watch the other monitors at the same time. I'm on a headset talking to my guys. So if I see something that's not kind of working, I'll talk to them about it. I like a collaborative environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's nice. So I, I think the guys that I work with, they, they appreciate that, and, and I think that's why we work well together. No, that's cool. So uh, we have a question from John Paul Summers. Uh, when, if ever, did you feel like throwing in the towel, and uh, how did you overcome it? I know you sort of talked about it a little bit after any given Sunday. where Yeah, you, you but that, that wasn't throwing the towel in. That was maybe like taking a break. Well, I was taking a break, but I was still a cinematographer. Um, Spider-Man. Really? Yeah, Spider-Man's working. Look, Marvel does a great job, and they do really wonderful films. That sort of genre isn't quite me, one. And two, there wasn't really much planning, and things kept changing. Oh, really? Which made it really sort of hard. Um, Communication wasn't so well. It was tough working at Atlanta at the time to motivate people. So I kind of lost myself a little bit there. And uh, I, I was really questioning what I was doing with my life. I always wonder, because we've, we've talked to a few people who've shot uh, superhero movies, and they sound like, you know, just such a massive undertaking. And especially given that I feel like mm-hmm. your work has such a personal touch, and you're trying to create such an emotional connection to the work that you're doing. And, you know, it's, it's not that superhero movies don't have emotions or personal touches, but I feel like it's like this, it's it's like, you know, you're you're painting a little painting to be hung in somebody's house or something it's like a a, 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 a very personal thing and this is like a, a giant screaming neon billboard well no I, you know the da, da Vinci Code wasn't personal yeah I guess it's no, true no Angels Demons wasn't personal you know it is that kind of it's a different genre but it's the same sort of big tentpole film definitely a big. lot of green screen a lot of you know effects and things especially in Angels and Demons right because yeah. you couldn't shoot in the Vatican no you know, uh, and to to work out Vatican, Sistine Chapel, all that we built. Yeah, didn't uh, you like? Didn't people like go in as tourists and take a bunch of still yeah, pictures? Yeah, they did. Yeah, for um, for visual effects. That's crazy. Did. And, <laughs> and you it know, worked. I saw the it, it, it worked great. It worked great. But, but you know, but I, so I've done all those. But I feel it like even those just, movies, like you're really in with these characters. Yeah. Like you really, like yes, it's it's an Indiana Jones kind of, yeah. you know. Ch- I, look, I think we were in in a lot with Tom Holland on uh, Spider Man. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, I think you really kind of get into the the character there. It was the process of making that film that was um, out of my realm in yeah. a way. In a way. Uh, not look, I'm I'm used to everybody coming and working really hard and communicating. Uh, there wasn't, that wasn't happening so well on that. And I, I didn't handle that in a good way. Mm. And that kind of made me sort of question what I was doing with myself. You know, I care, I care tremendously I, 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 about what I do. Because that, that is who I am. At the end of the day, your work is who you are. Yeah. And 
you know, I come to work every day, like just wanting to, to, to bring 2000% to it. Um, and sometimes when that doesn't work out, you got to f- sort of figure another way around it. I was having a little struggle with figuring that out. Mm. Yeah. Can you say how that manifested in, in your life or like in, in, like well, I, I questioned, I questioned what am I doing with my life there yeah. for a minute? Yeah. yeah. How did you overcome it? Therapy. <laughs> 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 yeah. You know, a lot of self-reflection, sort of thinking about it. Mm, yeah. Look, I, I just did a movie. It's, it was either, I did two films this past year that I, I enjoy, really enjoyed. I did a small film with David Ayer called Tax Collector. That was fucking amazing. David's amazing to work with, and I really, really want to... I would love to develop a relationship with him and, and work with him all the time. Um, it was a small film, 23 Days, Shia LaBeouf and everybody else was sort of pretty much no name um, except George Lopez. Uh, and it was based on the Mexican mafia. We shot in neighborhoods in South Central that nobody shot in before. And it was all because of who David knew and how he knew the Newman police, how he knew the the, the gang, uh, who's in charge of the gangs and sort of negotiated some oh, truces wow. so that we could be filming these neighborhoods. And I'm really proud of that movie. We didn't have much money to do it, and everybody worked really hard and focused really hard on on uh, making that film. It was I was an incredible experience. And then the film I just did with uh, Dennis Tanovic, I really enjoyed enjoyed being back on film again. I enjoyed the discipline on set. I mean, everybody just seems a lot more focused when this film. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's letting the camera roll and just talking. Nobody's saying to actors, "Just go again, just go again." You know, it's it's getting back to the basics of the craft. Uh, and I, it was this, this past year, 2018, was a very uplifting year, 2018, 2019, um, very uplifting for me, in um, very spiritually, uh, creatively, emotionally. I think, uh, you know, working with those two directors sort of really brought me back around and, and grounded. I'm very excited to sort of see what my next project's going to be and where I take it. Well, I think uh, that's an amazing place to leave it off, though. Um, uh, is there a place online where people can see your work? Yeah, I got to update my website. It's salvatortotino.com. You and um, every, every person we yeah, have yeah, in here I know, uh, I needs know. to update it's, their website. It's, All it's of interesting. You. I'm also Instagram. It's Totino. Instagram. Uh, I'm starting to do a little bit more of that, but I, I don't... I'm really particular about that. I try not to put anything that would give away a film when I'm working on a film. Of course. And I don't put anything personal up there, really. Fran thank you so much for right, coming well, thank out. Thank you it was, for having me. It was me. great to talk to you. It was fun. Yeah, I know. Uh, thank you very much. All right, so that was Sal Totino. Sal, thank you so much for coming out. And next time we will talk about fake plastic trees, I promise. <laughs> hey, Ben, uh, you know what time it is. My watch says it's about midnight-ish. That's right. It's uh, time to pay the bills All here right. at midnight. I want to talk uh, about our wonderful sponsor, Airy, for the next uh, minute or so here. The thing I want to talk about is the legacy and staying power of the Alexa Mini. You're familiar with the Alexa Mini, I'm, I'm guessing. It's like the Alexa, but it's smaller. Am I it, right? You're right. It is a smaller version of the Airy Alexa camera, but it is also... Uh, 
omnipresent throughout Hollywood, throughout the world, for all kinds of productions. It is used uh, on Academy Award-winning productions, and I was just, you know, browsing through a whole bunch of things here, uh, including The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Get Out, and um, Good Boys, uh, Doctor Strange, uh, Snowden, just kind of like perusing through like a quick list here I found online, uh, actually on a website called Shot on What, which is kind of a nice way to, to, to see a bunch of things, but uh, Game of Thrones, Happy Death Day, uh, I know that's a movie you've seen, um, Mudbound, there's Green Book, there's tons and tons of movies here, shot a ballad of Buster Scrubs, shot on this camera, and even today, I just, just ran into this the other day, that um, there's new cameras, newer cameras uh, that, that are coming out that are just now shipping. The Alexa Mini has so captured the hearts and minds of people out there. This camera, even though it's not the latest and greatest thing that Airy makes, it's not being discontinued. They are still selling. We just sold a brand new one uh, the other day here. And I have more people who are requesting this camera, even though there is new stuff. The uh, the Alexa Mini continues to go forward and continues to be used on all kinds even of things. Even more so than the Airy LF? Oh, well, well much more, just because there's so many more out there. Also known but, as the Airy Larry Fong. <laughs> yes, the Airy Larry Fong and the Larry Fong Mini. Don't forget, that's, oh, that's, that's, that's coming soon, too. Oh, but, sweet. But I will tell you that... Larry the, will be excited to meet <laughs> his mini-me. Uh, I, I don't want to tell you what the nickname for the camera is, but if you Google it, there you know, there's... A, there's a nickname that people have already it's oh the, you got to tell me now well the the mini lf is uh aff- affectionately being referred to by some people as the milf camera ah that makes yeah, sense they, they kind of shove those things together but i i think is a term of endearment not a not anything else um i will tell you that um the Alexa Mini, though, the original camera that came out now several years ago, like three years ago or more. Yeah, it's not that long ago. No, it's not that long ago, but it is. it continues to this day. To, for, for now, there's new cameras, new technology, and, and, and we're having conversations with people on a daily basis here at the shop. It's like, well, what do I really want? I really want an Alexa Mini. Then you can buy an Alexa Mini, and that is, that's, that's happening today. So uh, kudos uh, to, to Ari for even coming up with new stuff that is potentially or unequivocally uh, superior as far as resolution, maybe dynamic range or workflow or media or whatever all the advantages are. But the other one, they did such a good job that people are still buying it. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And, and kind of unusual in today's day and age. And now short ends. All right. So, so Ben, uh, we've reached our short end time of the show. Do you have a short end? I do have a short end, and it's a product that I have not held in my hands. So what? I, I'm not, oh, it must the, be brand new then. This is not an endorsement. It, it is. A, is it something I could sell at Hot Rod Cameras? Oh yes. Oh, all right, cool. I'm I'm ready. Lassie, who makes the, the 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 fine maker of hard drives that we all use for editing all. It's the not Lacy. It's Lassie. I have always heard Lassie, and also if yeah, you look it's at probably Lassie. It's L capital L lowercase a. Uppercase C I E. Oh, that sounds like Lissy. Lissy. Okay. Whatever. So Lissy, they make those rugged drives that we've all seen that have like the little orange rubberized uh, watchmajigger around the end. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. designed. I, I have one right over here. They're designed by somebody of note. I don't. I, I should know this person's name, and I don't. I apologize. Mm. But they have come out with a thing called a rugged boss, mm. and the rugged boss is that little rubberized drive in a case. It's got an SD card reader and a USB slot in addition to everything else. And the front face of it is like a screen that can show you information. I don't think you can actually fully preview uh, video or stills on it, but here's what it does. 
you can set it up. It, it, it pairs with your smartphone, Android or, or uh, Mac OS, and you can set it to any number of backup protocols. So you put the SD card in, and it can just back it all up, and it shows you the status of it backing up. It also has one where it like runs some kind of a checksum or something, and it and it and it double, triple whatever super extra checks to make sure everything's there. Wow! It connects to your phone, which you can plug in. I think right into the USB. It might also connect via Bluetooth, and you can look at the at the stills. It's kind of designed for still photographers, but I believe you will be able to look at the video that's that's on there. Now you're saying. Well, I shoot on uh, the Panasonic Vericam, so everything I have is on P2, and I don't have anything on an SD card, so up yours. Wrong. I mean, up mine anyway, but you're wrong uh, because it's got it's got a uh, USB, so you can put any USB card reader on Earth, which, you know, whatever, and I believe it also has USB-C, and you can, uh, so you could dump your footage straight from uh, P2 cards or you know, CF cards, whatever the hell you're using, uh, right onto this drive, it backs it up and it is designed for like being like that thing you have in the field when you're one man band or you're a three, three man band, three person band. And, and you need to, you need to make sure your stuff is backed up and you need to move on quickly. It has a battery. So, uh, you can have it on set without it being plugged in and you can back your stuff up. Also, you can plug it in like any of their other uh, hard drives and just use it as a hard drive, edit right off of it. Seems like a cool product to me. Hope it lives up to the hype that I just laid on it. And it's called Boss. Correct. So that immediately reminds me of something. Yes. Yep, like a boss. So that's uh, that, that, the, that, of course, was the Andy Samberg, Seth Rogen, uh, like a boss uh, playing in the background there. Uh, so I think that the makers over at Lassie thought that, man, with this device, you'll be like a boss. You'll be shooting like a boss. <laughs> We've just come up with their advertising campaign. You're They're, welcome. You're welcome, Lassie. Lassie so. or Lacey or however <laughs> the hell you say it. Hey, uh, my short end this week is a new Amazon series called Undone. I don't know if you've seen any part of it, but it has a very distinctive look. It is not a look that hasn't been done before. You've seen things similar, although I have to say that this one might be, I think, my favorite of all what, of what's them. What's the look? Describe it, the look. It's a, a combination of traditional animation, live action, and rotoscoped 3D effects all kind of married together. Like uh, the Richard Linklater movie, uh, Scanner Darkly or Waking Life? That's exactly right, okay. except uh, I actually think the, the visual effect looks even better in this one. And years Well, actually, it has been like 20 years since Waking Life, so hopefully they've gotten their shit together. Yeah, I, I, I certainly hope so, too. Yeah. But, uh, but, but really, I think these are, these are not all the same people, and this is um, a, there's a very cool behind-the-scenes, well, it's not really behind-the-scenes, but it is an interview with many of the people behind-the-scenes you can watch on YouTube right now. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right. So you can see some of the process in which they go through and how exactly this works, and it's relatively quick, but Man, is it cool, and I do believe that this might be sort of a harbinger, especially with uh, the the forthcoming AI that is getting into post-production, where rotoscoping, which used to be an incredibly painful process, oh, is becoming God. easier and easier, and eventually might become automatic. I have so, done some hand roto, and boy. I, I'm sure you have, and that's, Oof. it's not it's not Well, fun. even tools like in, in Adobe After Effects, there's a tool called the Roto Brush, and mm. it's very handy. But it's slow. It's slow. Yeah. And um, that's going to change. 
and I think we'll see more animated stuff. You might see more sort of like live action anime mashups because uh, what's going to happen is you're going to be able to have animated stuff and then mask it to tracking points or match it to tracking points that you have on on humans and in environments and uh, all kinds of things which maybe was in, would have been incredibly expensive to produce the, the live action visual effects for because now everything is animated. You can kind of make anything happen and the show kind of does some of that. I don't even want to uh, get into everything about the show but uh, it's got uh, Bob Odenkirk who's been on the cinematography podcast actually and awesome and uh you know we uh and if you haven't seen bob odenkirk on the cinematography podcast find our youtube channel it's in there it's the it's the one with the most views yes so so anyway uh so that's my my short end is uh watching the series undone go see the behind the scenes video on youtube you you won't regret it awesome so, Ilya, where can people find you online? They can find me here uh, over at Hot Red Cameras and uh, anywhere pretty much that uh, there's an, an at in front of your username at, um, at Ilya Friedman there. Yeah, I would recommend just go to BenRockOnline.com and you can find my uh, socials there. Not BenRock.com because motorboats. Yes, because fucking motorboat motor company. So uh, <laughs> We're going to get sued now because you've disparaged them. So. Uh, no, because <laughs> here's the thing. I'm going to make this short because I know nobody cares. The, <laughs> if anyone's even listening. The Benrock company, yeah, Benrock, uh, all one word, was sold to Marine One Voice <laughs> in like 2003. You, you've already talked about this. This is You've already gone through this on the show. You and don't then, have to do it again. And then they let the website, they let the domain go in like 2008. Like for the longest time, it would just refer you to Marine One Voice. They ben don't even one, do that now. Now if you go to Benrock.com, there's just nothing. It's just crickets. Nothing. There's nothing there. Not even a holding page. Nothing. Nothing. And they won't sell it to you? They won't. <laughs> it's your own personal hell. I'm like, look, guys, I, I can't guarantee much in life, but I can almost completely guarantee that I will never be your competitor in selling motorboat engines. It's just probably anything could happen, but it's uh, so unlikely. Uh, all right, Ben, let's let's thank our incredible team. All right. You first. All right. Uh, thank you, Alana Cody, for making this show happen. You know all the things that you're doing probably listening to the sound of my voice this very second uh going god why am i doing all this thank you thank you for doing it uh and we'd like to thank ben and abby our two uh intrepid intrepid was the word i was looking for it's the exact word i was looking for uh, editors uh who uh, make us sound like not morons they have a lot of hard work that's, <laughs> that's not <laughs> not easy to not, make us not sound stupid boy is it tough and sometimes i think that really they like let's just let them sound stupid let's just let it through this and, la- time. and lastly we we definitely want to thank the man who we know for sure is not hearing us say this kzal atrakshi who composed all the music you've heard he's an amazing composer god's gift to women he's an amazing i what I okay <laughs> I, he, he's just you know he's, he's incredible he's 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 an amazing director he's an amazing uh he, he, he can ride a bike he, uh, yeah he can <laughs> Now ju- we're just listing things. He, can this, jug- he juggles chainsaws. <laughs> this might be the latest we've done a, a, a raps for the show I'm, in a little while. So I'm a little loopy. Yeah, the, the loopiness is definitely set all in. Right. But all anyway, right. thank you, Kays. <laughs> Everyone go to musicbykays.com. Check out all of what Kays does. Check out the Kaysiverse. I just uh, trademarked that. I love it. Yeah. And uh, and uh, tell him that he did a great job for us. And if you are still listening and you have not subscribed to the show, what's wrong with you? Come on. Subscribe to the show. It's write free. Us, write us a review. It's Say free. something nice. Tell a friend. Telling a friend costs you nothing. Oh, we're almost out of T-shirts. We had another uh, very nice young man named Evan come in and Thanks, claim, claim a shirt. So, yeah. Uh, yes. All the things that you can do for us cost you nothing and take you as little time as a thing could take you to do. 
pretty much unless you want to write a like a dissertation about how awesome we are and then share it with all your friends on facebook and that, if you do that at god is my witness we will read it on this on this <laughs> podcast <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We, we if you write a dissertation uh, on your Facebook about how awesome it is, and you tag us, and we can find you, it's getting yeah, read. It's getting read. Yeah, and and the thousands of people we do have thousands and thousands of people who listen to our shows. Every single one of them, uh, we'll get to hear what what you've said. Hopefully, hopefully it's something nice. Choose your words carefully. <laughs> All right, and until next time. Bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.